I'm Glenna Hajek. I'm chair of the Cross-Cultural Partners team, and I'm here to read uh, from the NIV one of the most iconic or memorable passages of Scripture. This is Jesus uh, speaking. Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who asked him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome. My name is Mike Traven. I'm the other Pastor Mike here at Trinity Fellowship Church, and thank you for being with us here this morning. This morning, it's my great honor to introduce a guest speaker and preacher who will be speaking to us this morning, a good friend of mine, Mr. Pastor Deering Dyer from Uniontown, Ohio. He's here representing a ministry, a, a cross-cultural ministry called Good Shepherd India, uh, Deering and I had the pleasure of going to seminary together, uh, occupying a strata of students of much older people with life experience who weren't expected to go too far in ministry, um, and we haven't. So, um, but uh, Deering's a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, we were spiritual formation fellows at Dallas Seminary, and he's just one of those people that occupies a, a great place in my heart, and so it's a personal uh, privilege that that he would come and, and speak to us today. Deering is a person with a great deal of life experience. Uh, he's been a lobbyist. He's been a pastor. He's been a church planter. And today he does development for this organization called Good Shepherd India, which we're going to hear about here in just a moment. Um, a video is going to play before he comes up and speaks. But I also want to invite you to, to spend some time after our worship service to speak with him out in the foyer or in the fellowship hall and hear more about Good Shepherd India, how you may partner with them in whatever means that you have to do so. But uh, please join me in welcoming Pastor Deering Dyer. Thank you. 
India. 1.4 billion people, nearly five times the U.S. population, living in less than one-third the space. One of the poorest countries in the world. Some of the worst persecution against Christians. Record-breaking human oppression. Is there hope? We think so. And we know you do, too. Together with you and your church, Good Shepherd India is restoring God-given dignity to all Indians with the love of Jesus. We focus on those most desperately in need, the ones others have left behind. We give impoverished children a high-quality English-language education. Our health workers provide compassionate care to suffering people. We rescue women and girls from ritualized sexual oppression. We teach people how to earn a living and permanently escape poverty. Our teams help when disaster strikes, providing food, water, blankets, and medical aid. We help communities that love Jesus share the good news with their friends, families, and neighbors all across India in word and in deed, using film, scriptures, and powerful answers to prayer. Good Shepherd communities pray, worship, and learn together and keep the practice of breaking bread as one unified body. Together with you, Good Shepherd India is making Jesus real in India today. Won't you join us as we continue bringing joy to those in desperate need? We thank you. Hello, my name is Deering Dyer, as, uh, as Pastor Mike uh, introduced. Uh, thank you for, uh, uh, one, just taking a few moments to indulge me uh, um, with, uh, with, uh, with this uh, introduction to Good Shepherd India, um, but to, uh, for uh, trusting your pulpit uh, to the likes of me. Uh, Mike was overly generous uh, in his introduction. Uh, but uh, I do, I, I also, I love Mike, uh, Mike dearly. Mike is a... Has, is a is uh, one of the uh, handful of people in my life that I know I can I can tell him absolutely uh, anything. Uh, we were through the crucible together in, in seminary, and that just has a way of of breaking a guy down, you know. So, uh, but Mike uh, also he and I share another thing that, that uh, he encourages me as I as I watch him. That uh, he's also a man uh, in his fifties with very young children. So I am as well. I've got an 11-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy, and I, and I, I'm in my 50s. So please pray for me. And uh, that uh, they're all back in Ohio uh, right now with my wife Jennifer. And uh, but again, thank you for for having me here. Good Shepherd India. Just really quick, Good Shepherd India. We are a what I would call a church movement. Uh, it's an indigenous church movement. It is led completely by Indians. In India, uh, not it's not uh, led by any kind of a Western movement, uh, and that is why they've been able to stay there. And frankly, that's why the Spirit of God has 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 used them to be able to accomplish uh, the things that uh, have been accomplished over there. We have over five thousand congregations across the the subcontinent of India there, and we uh, have about fifteen hundred pastors that serve those 
over 5,000 congregations. So you can do the math with respect to that. The rule that we have is, is that a pastor can't have more than seven churches because he needs to have, he would have one a day at that point in time. But, uh, seriously, we've got uh, about 1,500 pastors serving 5,000 uh, churches. Uh, but our mission, our goal, uh, certainly as a church movement, uh, re- revolves around the issue of human dignity. That uh, we believe, as our Lord teaches, that all humans are of, of infinite value and of infinite worth and deserve dignity. And, and in India, you've got some who are not only in low caste, but live out of caste. They are the Dalit people. And those are the folks that that we in particularly seek to serve uh, first with the gospel and sharing the gospel, providing Bibles, uh, providing church fellowships, those types of things. And then at the same time, we want to meet uh, real needs uh, for for the people there. And we do so, as the video said, through through education, through health care, through economic development and anti-human trafficking uh, efforts. It's where... Uh, word and deed come together, and uh, so if you would, uh, if you would like to talk, I would I would love a chance to to meet you afterwards and just uh, give a little more information as to to what we are really what we're really about, and I'm grateful for for that. Um, but now we'll move on to um, the text uh, that we have uh, here this morning, and thank you, Glenna, for. For reading that, and I'm and I'm glad that you use the NIV uh, translation in that uh, because uh, when it gets down to the middle of the passage, uh, he actually, it's actually translated as sawdust, and we'll get to that uh, here in, in a in a little bit. But what we're going to talk about today is 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 our uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, and in this particular passage in, in verses seven one through twelve. Uh, requires our attention with respect to uh, having a, a heart change. But really, when you look at the entire Sermon on the Mount, that is really what uh, Jesus is getting at. Now, I'm going to be talking about heart change, and I, I want to take just a moment to define what I'm saying so that we're clear. When I say heart change, I don't mean that if you have an unchanged heart, you're not saved. That it's not a matter of regeneration. That That we are all on a journey while we are on this side of eternity to be about changing our hearts, about aligning our hearts uh, to the will of God. And it just and some of us are in different places on this journey, but I think that uh, a lot of us can, can really agree with the fact that uh, the, the longer we are on this journey, the more that we recognize how much more heart change we really need. When Jesus starts teaching, uh, beginning in Matthew 5 and then going through 6, uh, he, he starts by casting a, a beatific vision of what his disciples are supposed to look like. And then Jesus then proclaims that uh, he came to fulfill the letter of the law in order that we might live out the heart of the law. And through the power of the Spirit, giving us Christ's righteousness that then exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, if you are 
in the crowd and you're listening to that. And what? My, my righteousness is supposed to exceed that of the Pharisees. You guys have already heard this, this talk. They, they must have been thinking, how, how is this, this possible? I'm not a Pharisee. I don't know how this is going to work. So this is likely planted in the back of their minds as they're continuing to listen to what Jesus has to say. And in this part of the discourse, he tells, uh, he, in this part of the discourse, he tells his audience that uh, they are concerned with the letter of the law, but they miss the point and they violate the heart of the law of what God wants from his children. That God not wants heart change, not merely the knowledge of his law. So Jesus begins to pick at a scab that of hard hearts through a number of examples. And Jesus begins to just go through a litany of what changed hearts are not. He, that changed hearts are not murderously angry. They're not lustfully adulterous. Changed hearts don't abandon spouses. Changed hearts don't lie. They don't uh, retaliate. They're not vengeful. They're not greedy, self-promoting in their worship. They're not unforgiving and overly anxious about worldly things. And then this brings us to our text for today. As you can imagine, if you're listening to this at the time, and even today, as we read it, there's a crescendo at work that's about the climax. This crescendo is, is now coming to our text today that says that, that changed hearts are not judgmental. Judge not that you be not judged. Now this, this is one of those verses that is often quoted, but also just as often misunderstood inside and outside the church. Sometimes it's used as, as an excuse to maybe not address sin because of our own guilt and shame. We think like, well, I can't really talk about this because I've got this going on. Or sometimes it's used to cause shame to cover for licentiousness. Both of these extremes fall way short of the point that Jesus is making. Being judgmental is different than judging. I'll just say that right off the bat. There are times when we have to evaluate. There are times when we have to analyze. That is not what the text is getting at here, but what this text is getting is, is it's getting to how are we judging? Are we judging righteously or are we judging unrighteously? In this case, the sense of the word judge here means to condemn negatively, which means to imply that when we are, are critical, that we tend to, that we will be judging unrighteously. So the word here means to condemn negatively, to, to literally act like a judge sitting at his bench with the full weight and authority of the law behind him and making a decision, a pronouncement of judgment. Jesus is commanding us to not put ourselves in that position because that position belongs to one, and that is to God. That God is the only one who has such authority to change. And Jesus clarifies this in 7.2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured against you. Jesus is saying that, that only God can judge because 
of his perfection, his righteousness, his character. He is the only one who can judge perfectly. And by the nature of his character, can only judge perfectly. When we do this, we are acting out of our own critical and judgmental spirit. And that is, friends, really the very definition of of lacking self-awareness. Paul says it this way in Romans 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls, judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way in James chapter 4. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of the law. You are but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and there is only one judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This critical spirit, this, this uh, judgmental heart is really antithetical to the gospel. It's, it's motivated by, by pride, not by love. It's pervasive in our culture. All you have to do is, is look at the debates that you see on cable news um, and, and even on, uh, and certainly on social media. But it's also, friends, sadly, it's pervasive in our, in our churches. Um, we often criticize each other uh, without merit, without taking the time to enter the space of the person that we're criticizing. And the effect of that is really using holiness as a weapon. But Jesus continues with an example then to clarify uh, his point. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when when there is a log in your own eye? Jesus is using extreme hyperbole here, and it's very helpful to grasp his point. I want to ask you, have, have you ever gotten something stuck in your eye? It's terrible. It's, it's one of the most uncomfortable things that, that, that can happen to our body that is when we're otherwise just healthy. You know, it's, it's just no matter how much you rub, no matter how much you, it's just, it takes forever. Just to, on my way over here today, um, one of my contacts got something in it from the air conditioner, which I'm, I'm grateful to be using air conditioner living in Ohio. I mean, how wonderful is that? Um, but uh, something blew into my eye, and my contact lens went sideways in my eye, and I about drove off the road because it was just so so annoying and distracting. Another example is, is I remember this day very clearly. I was in high school shop class, and uh, we were for an assignment. We were we were given the assignment to build a sawhorse. Why one sawhorse? I don't know. 
It's kind of useless just to have one sawhorse, but that's, that's what they had, had us do. But, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm working away, and I don't wear, I'm not wearing my safety glasses, and a piece of sawdust goes right in my eye. And it, I, I couldn't handle it. I could not get it out. It was the most bothersome thing. It was, it was probably scratching my cornea. And I couldn't get it out until I went over to the eye wash station and, and, and washed it out. But that was just a tiny, tiny speck of sawdust. Looking at the text, point is Jesus, the point Jesus is making is, is that we're not dealing with a speck in our eye when we judge unrighteously. We have a log in our eye. And how hard and impenetrable must our hearts be to not notice that a log is stuck in our eyes? That we don't even notice it. So let alone a speck that we are quick to point out and see in a brother's eye or sister's eye, we have this log that's stuck in our eye. This is how God sees. This is a word picture of how God sees our sinful motives when we have a critical and judgmental heart. And the word Jesus uses to describe us is you hypocrite. And he's right. So what's the solution? Well, you could just look at this and say, well, I have no moral standing at all then. I shouldn't say anything to anybody because I've got this log in my eye. What right do I have to say to anybody else? So I'm just going to let it go. This is between them and God. Of course not. Because Jesus provides a better solution in the very next verse. Now catch this with me. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We've heard this verse, I don't know how many times. When I was studying this, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is, this is beautiful. Because we're given the instruction to first remove the log from our own eye. That, what does that entail? That, that, that's a process of remembering that first we're not God. We're not the judge. We don't sit on a bench. But we are mere beggars. We're in desperate need of grace and mercy. But we also need to remember that we have received the grace and the mercy that we desperately need. We, this way we can see clearly, and we can see clearly our position with Christ and our position in Christ. And that while we were still sinners and still sin, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. But we don't but we don't remember that we don't remember this to cause guilt or shame but it's quite the opposite we remember this we remember that Christ took away our guilt and shame and that we are no longer condemned because we clearly see and we have a humble attitude and we are self-aware to do what to now go like okay i can clearly see you have a speck in your eye. Now take it out. No, that's not what the text says. The text says you can clearly see so that you can help take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. We no longer have now a situation of judgmental, judgmentalism 
we now have a situation of discipleship. We see ourselves clearly now. And when we see ourselves clearly, we can see our, the, the, the failings and the, of our own uh, shortcomings of our own heart. We can now uh, see, uh, we can now be empathetic to our brother and sister's situation. And now we can enter into it with them and serve them out of love and compassion. So we see we are called to intervene, but we intervene in humility and patience and love. And when we do this, something beautiful happens. When we, when we practice this kind of discipleship, the church then becomes this place where we can safely struggle against sin, but then also the, the church becomes this, this beautiful place of, of not of loving you enough to not let you tolerate it. Let me say that again. The, the, the church becomes this safe place where we can struggle against sin, but then the church will also love you enough to not let you tolerate it. This is how discipleship in the church works. It's safe because we are aware of our own blind spots, working together to help one another be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Our next point here in Matthew 7, 6 is that changed hearts should be discerning. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. At first glance, this, this passage seems just really out of place. But when you study it and you look at it, it's really actually closely connected to the command, do not judge. Because using the standards of biblical community to judge those who are far from Christ will likely not win them to Christ and probably won't turn out well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, For what do I have to do judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Basically, Paul is saying that we, we don't hold a fallen world outside of Christ to our biblical standards. So if we carry on this judgmental spirit in our interactions with unbelievers, the response is most likely not going to be positive, much less pleasing to God. Instead, rather than trying to impose the standards of biblical fellowship on unbelievers... We ought to be about hospitality. This is really the definition, or this is really the difference between hospitality and biblical fellowship. We're about to be, we should be about hospitality, service, and love for no other reason than the fact that even though outside Christ, they are no less created in the image of Christ, or image of God as you are. And they are still they still deserve dignity. They still are of infinite value and work and worth just as uh, image bearers. We are to be patient and persevere with them as God did with us. And we look for opportunities to love them and to share the gospel in word and deed and pray. And the Spirit, and we pray that the Spirit would do 
and magnificent and generous work through salvation in Christ. But the text does say, if we encounter people who are stubborn and even hostile to good news, and rather than criticize and judge wrongly, we should just move on. That sounds harsh, but I think moving on probably makes God look better uh, to that individual than, than if we to, were to persist. And all the while we would pray for them and remember that we were once enemies of God, Romans 5.10. Now let's jump ahead very quickly to verse 12. Disciples, disciples of Jesus have changed hearts that live out the golden rule. Disciples of Jesus have changed hearts that live out the golden rule. Matthew 5, or Matthew 7, 12 has the familiar hearing of, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So, the conjunction so here is really quite inclusive. In fact, it goes all the way back to Matthew, Matthew 5.17, and it really encompasses the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount to this point. That in order to live out the golden rule, continued heart change is necessary. Why? Simple. It's because it's outward-focused. Lots of times people will argue and say that, you know, Jesus wasn't the first person to say this. There were, there were, there were religions before him that were saying, saying the same thing. And, uh, that is true in part. But what Jesus did, he did, whenever it was quoted before, it was quoted in the negative. In other words, it was, it, it's something to, to the tune of, whatever you do not want done to you, don't do to others. It's reactive. Um, instead, how Jesus has taught this, it's necessarily proactive and positive. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them. It's, it is outward focused. It requires proactive action. We are commanded to act first based on what we know that we need. And instead, a passive approach would be merely transactional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's not what this passage is saying. Instead, this takes the approach of serving first. And if you think about it, if each of us has this mindset as we're gathered together and as we live life together, if each of us has this proactive, others first mindset, even if it's motivated, even if it's informed on knowing what you need, but you're acting first, if everybody does that, there wouldn't be many unmet needs out there. If the whole body of Christ is of this mindset, then you have an ideal environment for discipleship and a biblical community fulfilling the law Fulfilling the heart of the law of the prophets, tying the golden rule neatly with the great commandment. 
is that this is how we love God and we love neighbors. So it's begging the question, how do we get this heart change? How do we do it? Well, I think the answer is in verses 7 through 11. That we change our hearts and we be about the hard work of changing our hearts by asking God to change our desires. We change our hearts by persistently asking God to change our desires. Psalm 139, 23 24 says, Search my heart, O God, and see that there will be any grievous way in me. This is, this is a posture that we've got to start with. In Matthew 7, 7 through 8, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. Now, if you just read this, it sounds kind of Yoda-ish, really. It's, 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 it's kind of, it, it, it's, it's ambiguous. Ask, ask, ask for what? We're given these three promises that it's ask and it's given. You seek and you will find. Knock and it's open. And, and it's open. But the question is, is what is Jesus really telling us to ask for? We know that he isn't telling us that we need to ask for just anything. God isn't a genie in a bottle. He's, he's, and he's certainly, this certainly is not a proof text for our prosperity gospel. What is Jesus asking for? And I think he gives us a clue. He gives us a clue in, uh, in, the, in 9 through 11. He says, which of you, if his son asks for, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, you'll give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. I don't know why he doesn't say give good gifts to your evil children, because they, they are vipers and diapers. Uh, but uh, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I think Jesus is telling us that the desires of our hearts need to be aligned with God's desires for us. And Jesus is telling us to be persistent in prayer, to change our fleshy desires and make them holy desires. Desires that bring real heart change in our lives. So how do we do this? Well, when we go to God in prayer, asking him to change the desires of our heart He provides exactly what we need. He provides the power of the gospel, and he provides the help of the Holy Spirit. We don't just, he provides the power of the gospel, we don't just need the gospel to get saved. We need the gospel every day of our lives. We need to remember the gospel Every day of our lives. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day of our lives. We need it to help us to grow into Christ. And the help of the Holy Spirit in the parallel passage in Luke of this, this, this aspect of the, the Sermon on the Mount discourse. In, this, in Luke, he adds the words, 
if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? As we pray for our heart's desires to be aligned with God's, I really think that there's no better place to turn than Romans chapter 8. And um, we're not going to uh, spend certainly any length of time here going through Romans 8. Uh, but I would encourage you that maybe today, sit down, look at Romans 8, and look at how God, uh, that Paul presents the gospel of Christ, and then also how he, the, the power of the Holy Spirit work together to help us and we, and we, as we change our hearts. Heart change is not an easy process, friends. But we do have this promise that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. And that, uh, that God is at work in you and in me. But we just have to be intentional. And we have to be intentional to go to God and ask for help in this heart change and that we need to lean heavily into the power of the gospel and the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this text today. Uh, as I prepared uh, uh, through the week, um, the conviction uh, was at, at times uh, quite difficult. Uh, the temptation to feel shame and guilt, uh, the temptation to 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 flee are all too real. But thank you for, for this work, uh, this, this work of the Spirit in our lives. Thank you for the power of your gospel. Uh, we pray that uh, this would be something that we can, can lean into, uh, not just today, but in the days ahead. We rejoice. We rejoice that, uh, that, uh, that you have have given us uh, these good gifts as a good father, that uh, you uh, don't leave us alone to be as orphans, but, but you know what we need. And that uh, through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf, that as we pray and as we ask and as we plead, that uh, our groans would uh, be taken to your ears by the Spirit, and then somehow, some way, it's used uh, to combine uh, to be made into uh, in accordance and alignment of your will. We thank you for this. I pray, pray that you bless these 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 folks as they go about their days. I pray that you uh, guard their their hearts, and uh, we pray these things in the in the power and the 
perfect name of Jesus Christ and by the, and by the work of your Spirit.